Good afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, black holes, viruses, and brains. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Jack O'Neill, who will discuss the Echelon eavesdropping system. Also, we'll find out what the Homo and Lumo are. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And again, it's the makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I feel like it's spinning. Spinning? Yeah. Uh, on a merry-go-round? Yeah, why not? <laughs> okay, in a centrifuge? Uh, that's a little bit rough, but uh, bacteria can do that. Yes, they are often put in centrifuges. <laughs> but talking about bacteria that produces electricity. How is that related to spinning? These are magnetic bacteria, oh. and once you put them in s- small plastic boxes with uh, metal strips on each side, you can induce them to spin because these strips act like electrodes. Mm-hmm. The spinning actually generates a magnetic field and a current about up to 25 microamps. Okay, but of course you have to run a current through both of these strips, right? Or yes, these... but apparently if you could figure out some biochemical mechanism to induce the spinning by itself and then create the current, you can use these bacteria as sources uh, of energy. energy. Moving magnetic field or charge produces a current, right? Right. How would you get that to happen, though? So actually this was done by a 16-year-old high school kid at Kartik Madaraju from Montreal, and this was part of his science experiment for Sanofi Aventus Biotech Challenge in Canada. I guess, I guess it's the equivalent of the Intel. The Intel or the Westinghouse uh, science thing. Right. Basically, he was able to get these bacteria to produce current as much as a double A battery for 48 hours. How was he able to get the bacteria to actually spin in these? Or was it just a random motion? I I guess it's a random motion, but by their spinning, they were able to create a current. Right. I would imagine, though, that it would be kind of a stochastic process. So if you have them all kind of moving in different directions, wouldn't that cancel out the currents? I would think so, but maybe they're spinning around an internal axis. So, but the main thrust is somehow he got these little bacteria in the two yeah. to spin and create a current. Right. <laughs> very good. <laughs> It'll be interesting to realize if they can write a paper on this. Yeah, or at the very least uh, find a Game Boy at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Powered by bacteria. Yes, bacteria inside. Uh-huh. So this was actually reported in Wired News. Well, spinning sounds like so much fun, so we'll go all the way from bacteria to the supermassive black holes. Can that be uh, turned into an acronym? SPA. <laughs> okay, so they're not wimps then. No. <laughs> I guess they could beat up on the wimps. The weakly interacting <laughs> massive yes. particles. Yes. One of the big surprises that's come out is apparently these supermassive black holes are... Nice ring to it. <laughs> ...better than just a massive black hole. <laughs> They're actually even more efficient and energetic at converting energy than quasars are. Uh, So what happens? They don't give off as much radiation as quasars? Well, as materials like coalescing around the black hole and spinning into it, right. it then re-emits and ejects the materials at its poles and does this in a more efficient manner than the quasars do. The supermassive black holes are able to convert about 2.5% of the infalling gas and dust to energy, which is really quite good, in fact. Right. But it's still not quite as good as the best nuclear-powered reactors. It's very fascinating work to just show 
shows that there's still a lot to be learned about these stellar processes. They right. don't quite know what's going on. And as one researcher, uh, Steve Allen of Stanford University, he says, just like cars, you need to know what the fuel efficiency of the black holes are in order to know exactly how the engine's running. <laughs> 20 mpg? <laughs> hopefully a little bit better than that. Hmm. And hopefully not dependent on Middle East oil reserves either. <laughs> but this is very fascinating work, and it's uh, published in a recent edition of the Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. So, Charles, you must have encountered a lot of interesting brains while you've done surgery throughout your career, right? Well, mostly in colleagues that I've had to work with. Oh, okay. (laughs) My brown nosing for the day. And they're smarter than the average person, right? Uh, Yes, that remains to be determined. So uh, speaking of brains, there's an interesting brain museum in Lima, Peru that just opened. Oh, okay. It's called the Museum of the Brain. How aptly named. Go inside, there's a bunch of preserved hearts. Uh-huh. <laughs> but in fact, there's 2,000 brains. And uh, you can see brains of people who are afflicted by a whole range of different diseases. These are just human brains. Yeah. What were you expecting? Well, I mean like a comparative thing, like different animals as well. There could be, but the uh, interesting things are the different yeah. disease brains that you can see, yeah. including trichinosis, stroke, Alzheimer's, and of course, the mad cow disease. That goes in my rogues gallery of different brains that I like to have. (laughs) If only they had playing cards with each of those on there, I'd the Ace of Trichinosis. <laughs> this is a very uh, interesting collection. It actually started in 1942. If anyone's interested, go down to Peru and check it out. All right, well, there is a, an alternative source if you want to see brains of, at least pictures of brains. The University of Wisconsin, they have a brain museum of different animals, and they made collections and made photographs, and you can take a look at that. And I believe their website is brainmuseum.org. So you don't have to go to Peru <laughs> if you don't want to. Well, I'm wondering if in that uh, brain museum there's an example of a brain infected with chikungunya. Chikungunya? Chikungunya. That almost sounds like a disease so cool that you should get. <laughs> well, apparently it's Swahili for that which bends up oh, <laughs> because uh, it refers to the bent posture of the uh, people who suffer from it. Is it a brain disease or is it a chiropractic disorder? <laughs> it's actually a virus that is very common in Southeast Asia, the Indian Ocean area. It's uh, recently been infecting almost a third of the population of the French island of Réunion. Uh-huh. And it's also been hitting neighboring islands of Mauritius, Madagascar very hard. The strain of the virus now, which is particularly virulent, and disease researchers are somewhat worried, and they're looking at this very carefully. What they've actually found is they've looked at this virus, and they found that it has a couple of mutations in it that make it able to infect the mosquitoes very easily. Wow. And then those, in turn, can then go and infect humans very quickly. Even as vectors. Yes. So it's very fascinating, and one of the amazing things about it is that when it attacks, it attacks so quickly, you could be driving, and all of a sudden you just have to stop. It hits you so hard. These <laughs> yeah. viruses are smart. Yeah, well, you know, they... Plan their attack. Uh-huh. Revenge, huh? Right. <laughs> what did we do to them? I think we've raised the global temperature a couple degrees, so they're pissed off, right? <laughs> Again, another little thing to be uh, on the lookout for uh, if you happen to start bending up. So far, it's still confined to those small islands, Indian Ocean. Uh-huh. Sylvain Briss at the Institut Pasteur in Paris, France, he published his re- results in PLOS Medicine. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, we'll be joined by Mr. Jack O'Neill, who will discuss the Echelon Surveillance System. So stay tuned.
All right, welcome back to the Grok Science Show. Well, after 9-11 and the passage of the Patriot Act, the government dramatically increased its domestic intelligence-gathering powers through electronic eavesdropping and wiretapping. Now, with the introduction of warrantless domestic wiretapping, the debate is whether the government has gone too far or if eavesdropping has become a necessarily evil in the war on terror. Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Mr. Jack O'Neill. Mr. O'Neill is an electronic surveillance expert who has served in the White House under Presidents Carter and Reagan. He is an electrical engineer who has collaborated on the design of some of the most sophisticated eavesdropping systems ever devised. And he has penned a new book called Echelon, Somebody's Listening, which explores the secret world of surveillance. Mr. O'Neill, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, well, certainly our pleasure, and I think you've certainly penned a very relevant and interesting book, Echelon. I'm curious if you can talk about the Echelon system that the NSA uses for actually eavesdropping. Uh, well, Echelon is the code name of the National Security Agency's global eavesdropping system, and it, it picks up everything uh, around the globe 24-7, never shuts down, just follows the turning globe and the sunrise somewhere, and it picks up television, uh, data streams, a voice, telephone, everything. It picks up every language and every dialect in every language that's on the air. So you can imagine that all of this stuff being funneled back to the National Security Agency here just south of Baltimore. It's quite a job on what to do with this. It's like getting hit in the face with a fire hose of information continuously, and their job is to find the droplet or the drop, if you might say, this afternoon that they might correlate with something that was received three and a half months ago and something that would really tie it all together a few days from now when they receive it. So it's a major effort, and the people that work there are very well educated and very, very much patriots. And, And the system itself, a lot of people wonder, what is it? And it's basically a set of uh, antennas that are in satellites, they're in airplanes, they're on ships, submarines, and on land. And the ones on land you can find in all different forms, but the, the largest ones are called antenna farms. And they're in uh, England, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, you know, to cover different mm-hmm. parts of the globe. There's a second eavesdropping system which is not Echelon. Now, Echelon is restricted by law to be used only outside the United States, Mm -hmm. and the one inside, of course, is the FBI's wiretapping, and that system is passive. You only get information after you've gotten approval to uh, listen in, and a judge agrees when somebody picks up the phone and talks. So there's significantly different types of systems, and that's important to understand. The Patriot Act, by the way, is the day when it became law. That's the day the novel starts. And the book is a factually based novel about what four segments of society as they respond to a sudden act of terror. You go into the terrorist world, you go into the FBI and CIA working together because now the Patriot Act allows them to do that for the first time in almost 30 years. First responders, a detective in, in my novel in Miami, and civilians, civilians who get caught or ensnared by this system, end up finding themselves running for their lives. Mm-hmm. And, and so you see all different segments. But coming back to the echelon and wiretapping, the active and passive systems, when we put the FBI and the CIA together on the fifth floor of the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., where they're sitting right now as, as we talk, what we combined was different cultures. We have a law enforcement, which is what the job of the FBI traditionally is, intelligence gathering, which is 
the traditional job of the CIA, and they run under different laws and regulations. The vetting system, the approval system to listen in on an international connection is extremely complex, extremely severe. Needless to say, all of the embassies around the world, you want to make sure you're not violating any one of the country's privacy laws. And it takes weeks. And by the time you, you get to go through all of the departments within the National Security Agency, you end up with maybe a, an inch thick packet of material. <laughs> and it, it's similarly now the one in the United States, of course, that's the uh, attorney general followed by a, a judge, a federal judge. So those are the different laws and regulations, and you have different systems we talked about and different approval cycles. So it's quite a job to have these people sit together and go through all of this, which is mandatory, of course. There's a rundown on what the systems are and how they work, where they are. Hmm. I guess a lot of the uh, issue was, in fact, how well these different agencies actually are able to work together. Oh, absolutely. Hmm. absolutely. It's like any large organization. I don't know any corporation that doesn't have conflicts between people who are doing just a normal business of any sort, you know, whether it's making records or providing groceries. There's always conflict. And when you have law enforcement people, they are uh, strong-willed and they have a very tough job to do. And now they find themselves with somebody else sitting next to them who doesn't work under the same Mm -hmm. types of rules and regulations. And in fact, one interesting thing that's in the book is the hero of the book is a fellow who comes from the NSA, but he comes from a relatively new technological company that the CIA has formed called InQtel. And InQtel is a not-for-profit venture capital firm. The CIA, through this firm, actually provides support money, development money to corporations that might have some type of software, primarily software, that they might be able to use in digesting this huge amount of data that they collect at the time. And this system is across the Potomac from the White House in a city called Roslyn. And it's intriguing what they do. I think one of the big successes there. But somebody from there, the the hero, has to sit next to FBI person who's never done anything like that, who's basically uh, law enforcement oriented only. So that's a further clash of cultures, if you will. You're right. There there is a lot of issues that that are being worked out. Right. How easy uh, is it to sift through this mountain of data? I mean, is it largely computerized? Do you have analysts that uh, sit through and uh, check any red flags? It has to be computerized. It, mm-hmm. It's basically what you would think. First, geographical sorts are made. If we're interested in one area of the world more than another, then that particular segment might be looked at more, or a language, or a uh, dialect within that language, or even a telephone number, or a group of telephone numbers. Mm-hmm. So you have that physical type of division. But once the data comes in, and, and it all comes in, I'm, mm-hmm. it just, but the computer's then try and digest it. And and there are programs. The book goes into this. It it explains by name and how they do it, different types of data reduction systems that are being used. And, for example, you can take for an arbitrary country like Japan, and you can take a 30-minute television program there, and a computer will reduce it to a five-minute excerpt and alert that, yes, somebody should look at this or no. And that's the uh, bottom line. Somebody has to be there to actually make the decisions. Do we go forward with this? Is it something of interest? And that's the human intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, How how easy actually is it to be able to tell if you are, in fact, being bugged, listened in on? You you probably would not be able to. You know, when you watch the old television movies, you hear a click on the phone. Even we hear it even now. That's, I would say, 99.9% 
probability. It is not anything but a, a glitch on the telephone line because all of the eavesdropping systems are electronic. There isn't any you know, physical uh, picking up a receiver and some, or I can hear somebody breathing on the line. That's not the way it's done. So I wouldn't expect anybody to uh, have them say, yes, I'm being eavesdropped. The way it could happen, rather than let's talk the positive side, if you happen to call the, oh, I'd say the John Gotti family in New York, and they happen to be monitoring that telephone number, you will become a person of interest. Hmm. Now, the law doesn't allow them to listen forever, just for a short period of time. And if you are talking things that might suggest the criminal action, they're allowed to listen longer. But there are definite restraints on how long and what it is that can trigger that type of thing. But to think that you would be able to hear or recognize it by uh, sound or breath on the line, that's just not what's hmm. happening. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, actually, so what is the expanse of the government's rights in terms of actually eavesdropping locally and domestically? The, the way you get on to a, a local telephone tap is what was in the press all of the time since December when it was the New York Times made it public that we were listening in to civilians here in the United States right. who were talking back to bad guys mm-hmm. without getting a warrant. So in the United States, normally you have to do is to get an attorney general to document and explain exactly why you want to listen into A, B, or C, and then once he has done that, then have to get a federal judge to concur. And so there is a ritual, and the one, as I already explained, the one in Echelon, which is very, very severe. And what happened with the president, because everybody is interested in that, is that when we catch a treasure trove of information from an overseas al-Qaeda person, for example, you know, we can get all of the records, telephone records, email records, computer information, and that has to be brought back either electronically or physically to the National Security Agency, and people then have to start to digest it, which means you sit down and you start to get out your computer and say, well, here's a telephone number, I wonder what it is, and you have to run it down to find out what it is. So it takes time. And the NSA and the CIA are working hand in glove. If something uh, is of interest, they immediately alert the CIA contact over there to follow up, and they'll go after it, might get some more information, fire it back to the NSA. So this is going uh, at mock speed. Now, as I mentioned before, if they find somebody, which they did, for example, when Abu Sabata was caught in Pakistan, he's Mm -hmm. a very high-level al-Qaeda person, and we did get it, the treasure trove, an absolute treasure trove of all sorts of information. Unfortunately, it was broadcast, his capture, and needless to say, all of the bad guys that were listening or talking to him dove into rat holes, mm-hmm. and they shredded their emails, destroyed their computers, and disappeared. But a few didn't, and they were still talking to people in the United States. Now, once the NSA found out that they were in the United States, they were obliged to get a court order to hand it over to a second group of people, the FBI. And then the FBI had to be alerted, you know, what is it I'm looking for? Who is it? What do they want? What are your criteria? And then they start to listen. They find something, and then they pass it back across this uh, barrier. And, of course, that's a time delay. And so an al-Qaeda person here, or related, if you will, uh, who is talking to his foreign counterpart had a a distinct time advantage over his brethren in the United States. And that's basically what President Bush said. If you find somebody in the United States, you know, alert the FBI. But if you find that they are talking back to their counterpart in the United States, just go ahead and start listening in right away. Mm -hmm. Let's not have any more time delay. 
Mm-hmm. So you can argue either side of that fence. You know, it's, it's darned if you do and darned if you don't. Right. Well, it is, it's certainly a hot-button issue here. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we are running slightly out of time, but I, I'm just curious, what, what inspired you to actually write the novel? Well, you know, uh, being in the business, they're, they're, I'm aware of how many people are there that are working so hard, and they're real patriots. They put in a lot, a lot of overtime and uh, long hours, and you never hear of them. I'm talking about people that are working those antenna systems, that are working the equipment that's there, that are supporting the communication system that's funneling it all back, and then the National Security Agency, which is really not just here in Baltimore, but it's spread around the country and all of the people that have to do the human interface. And so I I thought it would be uh, a good idea to let people know where these systems are, how they work, how they're controlled, and give them fictitious use of this system. But it's it's a factually-based novel. You know, when you finish reading this, you will understand what the Echelon system is, what Carnivore is, Magic Lantern, how the Patriot Act is uh, intertwined, what InQtel is, all of those things that we've been talking about. And everybody loves the novel, my goodness. (laughs) If you go on Amazon.com and use Echelon as the keyword, you can read the reviews. They're knocking me over. I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm very, very pleased. Well, it is, it's is—it's really a great novel, and people certainly, it's better than a dry uh, recitation of how things are done. Oh, yes, yes, and, that, and that's basically, you just said it in mm-hmm. a nutshell, that's exactly what I was trying to do. If you tried to do a technical explanation, nobody, in fact, most of the people that run the system wouldn't even read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly hope people will go out and check it out. The book book is called Echelon, uh, Somebody's Listening. Mr. O'Neill, thank you very much for joining us today on The Grox Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. And you were just listening to Mr. Jack O'Neill discussing Echelon and eavesdropping technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Here we go. It's the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, listen in or tune out. So for the falling five people, uh, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, are they actually worth eavesdropping on? Are they worth eavesdropping in? I, I'll tell you whether I would like to listen in. Uh, that's that's uh, all we'd like to know. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so here we go. Person number one, listen in or tune out, Apple CEO Steve Jobs. Oh, tune in. I mean, that man is so ingenious. I'd love to hear his words, be in his world for a while. Yeah, I'm sure Bill Gates would, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, any technically oriented person would. Uh, okay, so number two, Jessica Simpson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tune her out. <laughs> yeah. Okay, number three, Deep Throat himself, F. Mark Felt. 
Well, he's not too cogent at the time, so I wouldn't listen in on him. He's past his prime. Okay, so maybe not much uh, new to no, say. Yeah, no, <laughs> All right, uh, number four, the celebrity entity that is known as Benefer. Oh, Ben Affleck and Jennifer. Yeah. No, that doesn't interest me, I must admit. <laughs> okay. It just doesn't. Okay, and finally, number five, uh, listen in or tune out the President of the United States, George Bush. Oh, I would listen in. Oh, absolutely. I think he's uh, a person of, of interest, if you will, not for the technical type, but... You know, just just sort of hear his personality and the way he makes decisions, the way he accepts information, and whether he's at a party or whether he's at a cabinet meeting. I would love to be a fly on the wall there. <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. O'Neill, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around and playing our game, the Grokotron 5000. Of course, talking about your book, Echelon. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much for your Bye time. Bye now. And for us here with the answer to last week's question of the week, what are the homo and the lumo? Well, the HOMO is the highest occupied molecular orbital, and the LUMOS the lowest unoccupied molecular orbital. And so the electrons, they jump from, from the HOMO to the LUMO, and that's how you get a molecule excited. All right, my friend. Now it's Vinny here. I've been trying to get you to crack, my friend. You xenon. Argon. Why are you so nut? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, you talk to me, Vinny, here at groxathotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might start to bond. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Link. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.